So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership, and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to this week's show. I hope you're having a great week wherever you're tuning in from. We've had a few episodes focused on sport, and this week I wanted to shake things up a bit. So I hope you'll find this episode disruptive to your thinking and beliefs around technology. For those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, our summer holidays are now long gone and our kids are piling back into the schools. So it's a great time to get stuck into our professional projects and challenges. Regular listeners will know that I spend the majority of my time with Sporting Edge supporting corporate leadership teams to have more clarity and confidence during these times of pressure and uncertainty, many of them in financial services, tech, pharmaceuticals or automotive have to adapt their business models and also need to maintain a vibrant and healthy culture. So I use the short video insights from the Sporting Edge Library of all the thought leaders that we've interviewed to spark fresh thinking and debate. So I'm always looking for people that can give thought-provoking perspectives and today's guest definitely gives that. As a quick plug, if you'd like to use our digital insights in your team meetings, your conferences or internal comms campaigns, then drop me a note through to hello at sportingedge.com and we'll organise a demo of the platform for you. As an example of how it's used, Ben Gaunt, who's the Senior Vice President of Talent at BP, recently used a series of our two-minute videos at one of their top 100 events and had a great impact. In his feedback, he said, Sporting Edge's content is insightful, provocative, and inspires new ways of thinking. It's a brilliant resource for leaders. So let's kick off today's session. It comes from a thought leader in the intersect between society, innovation, and technology. She's a New York Times best-selling author and a globally respected strategist. Here's a sample of what's coming up. When I look at the future, I always look at it through the lens of a, you know, a a complete perspective. And and to put that another way, it's I think it's going to be completely awesome and completely terrible in equal measures at the same time. Every single tool that you use, whether it's Twitter or a web browser or an app, has embedded inside it someone's idea of what the future should look like. I think one of the most helpful things for people to realize as they're navigating their relationship with social media is to understand that these systems were deliberately designed to be addictive. 
what neuroscience has shown us is that our brain needs downtime, that activities like mind wandering or daydreaming are absolutely critical parts of the creative process. So let's get inside the mind of Rahaf Harfouche. I interviewed her from her home in Paris and the obvious question to kick off was, what the hell is a digital anthropologist? I certainly don't remember that being an option when I was at school and for good reason. Digital anthropology is the study of technology's impact on culture and culture's impact on technology. And considering the fact that we are living increasingly connected lives, I think it is one of the most important disciplines to have and to develop because technology is changing the way we do everything. It's changing the way we train for sports, the way we date, the way we raise our kids, the way we build friendships, the way we work and the way we self-improve. And so understanding not just the benefits, but also some of the blind spots, some of the concerns, some of the deeper and slower and more hidden changes that take place when we bring tools like this into our lives, I think is essential in ensuring that these tools continue to support us and serve us instead of us being controlled by algorithms or technology agendas that might not really be aligned with how we want to live our lives. I'd followed Rahaf's work for several months before I got in touch. I find this topic so interesting as we all navigate this world which is becoming increasingly digital. I think we've all got a responsibility to question the big tech companies to ensure their services are considered ethical and helpful. And as we'll hear today, that isn't always the case. We seem to idolise the big tech giants coming out of Silicon Valley for their rapid growth, their billion dollar valuations and their hundreds of millions of users. But are we really users or are we the ones being used? I don't know if you've seen the documentary called The Social Dilemma. It was released in 2020 and it features some of the engineers behind the likes of Google, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. There's a great line in that documentary that says, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. In other words, those platforms make money from advertisers knowing that they can sell their products to you. To do that, they need to know precisely your preferences and interests by tracking every move we make online and then giving tailored and targeted ads in between all of our friends' posts or the cat videos that we find so addictive. Our attention and our desire to have more stuff is the valuable commodity. And it's so valuable that they're prepared to deliver billion-dollar platforms and give access to the platforms for free in return. I was interested in Rahaf's thoughts on this because we've all heard the amazing stories of Facebook reuniting long-lost friends or the clever innovations like AI being used to drive facial recognition on our laptops and phones. So having a rational and balanced perspective of both the positive and negative impacts that technology will play in our lives in the future will be critical to prevent us from being led into a detrimental position which we feel powerless to counter. I think we're at a very interesting stage in terms of what's coming next. I never really try to predict because I just don't really believe in, in, in sort of predicting certain things. What I can tell you is that what I have learned is that when I look at the future, I always look at it through the lens of a, you know, a, a complete perspective. And, and to put that another way, it's I think it's going to be completely awesome and completely terrible in equal measures at the same time. 
So every time I see a technology where it's like, wow, this is going to be great. It's going to be, it's going to save people. I always think what is going to be the equal and terrible simultaneous consequences going to happen here. And by the same note, anytime I hear somebody saying this technology is awful, it's going to absolutely destroy us. I think, okay, well, how is this also going to be used to help people? Because the same AI technology that is being used, for example, by IBM's Watson to completely improve cancer diagnostic rates is the same type of technology that can be used by another company to uh, manipulate their opinions or to deny them service based on their profiles or to racially profile them. And it's the same base technology. At the core, I think we have to remember that technology is a reflection of us as human beings. And as human beings, we are awesome and we are terrible often at the same time simultaneously. And so what I would wish is as we talk about these new things like Web3 or AI or predictive analytics, that we always remember this duality and that this duality is going to exist because I don't want to hear somebody telling me about a dystopian future, but I also don't want to hear about somebody trying to sell me a utopian future. I just want the future. And this technology is a reflection of us as very, very flawed human beings. So what I would love is as we look at these trends, that every time we see opportunities, we consider who are the people that are going to be harmed. And every time we get scared, we remember all the advantages and all the progress that technology has made. And I think leaders who develop the capacity to hold this duality, this complexity, this contradictions will be the ones who make the most thoughtful, compassionate, ethical decisions about the technologies that they bring into their companies, about the people that they hire, and about their organizational priorities. So AI, the metaverse, and Web3 aren't the issue. They have the potential to enhance our lives massively, but it's the ethical application of them that's really important. And this is going to call for greater understanding of that tech landscape and add in the same scrutiny that maybe the financial services sector is exposed to at the moment since the banking crisis. The compliance legislation there aims to minimise the risk of anyone getting into financial trouble or being misled. But tech as an industry seems sexier and less understood. It's moving too quickly, it feels like. But it's equally, if not more dangerous to the minds, the emotions and the behaviours of adults and especially our youngsters who are still forming their sense of self in this digital world of likes, followers and micro-messaging. As the parent of two teenagers, or probably more like screenagers, I know how hard it is to separate them from their tech. So we all need some help from the platforms and the regulators to ensure that we've got a healthy relationship with technology long-term. Rahaf really challenged my thinking. As a society, we're sold dream stories of the quick fix, the rapid weight loss, the millionaire in six months, and we fall for it every time. In our research at Sporting Edge and our interviews with the world's elite performers, the opposite story seems to underpin their success. These are the pioneers and the grandmasters in sport, business or academia. Their masteries come from the long path, the patient, disciplined game, the repetition, it's less sensational, but for me, it's more authentic and more believable. The reason so few people make it to this level is because it takes incredible discipline and patience, as well as talent. But the one thing I've never considered was how our fascination for rapid growth and success translated into various business models. And as Rahaf now explains, when we aspire for unicorn businesses to spread their wings, they may also 
be trampling on our local high street vendors. As a digital anthropologist, I have come to learn that technology is inherently human. By that, it is the manifestation of belief systems. Technology is simply somebody deciding that the world should look a certain way and then building a tool to bring our world closer to that vision. And so what this means is that every single tool that you use, whether it's Twitter or a web browser or an app, has embedded inside it someone's idea of what the future should look like, right? So Twitter was somebody's idea that shorter is better. And somebody decided, the founders of Twitter decided short communications were the ideal way of, of were the ideal ways of connecting with people, right? Facebook and social networks were based on the idea that people should be connected and that people should maintain these connections throughout, you know, the entirety of our lives instead of having, say, the natural social decay of people falling off. So every single technology that you use has this point of view, has a belief system or an ideology. What we're starting to see right now is as our economy shifts towards more of a technological economy, as we're starting to see governments invest you know, billions of dollars into startup ecosystems, we have to start looking at what belief systems these ecosystems have put in place. And what I have found is that when you look at traditionally some of the most popular startups, some of the biggest companies today, they were also based on a belief system of a certain type of economic model. Uh, one of these financial systems or one of these financial ideologies is called blitzscaling, which is the idea that in order for a company to be successful, you're going to put a lot of money in at the beginning to help it scale up as fast as possible so that it can take over the market as fast as possible and we'll figure out how it'll make money later. Now, in theory, this is great for the companies that do it successfully because they get to dominate the market. They don't have to worry about profitability or earning money or <laughs> delivering, um, you know, in, in, they don't have to worry about losses. But what's ending, what's happening now is that as more of these companies are aggressively applying this financial strategy, what's happening is the end result is that we're going for monopolies. It's a winner take all strategy. And that might be all fine and good, but if you're trying to build an ecosystem, you cannot build an ecosystem of inclusive prosperity when everyone's end goal is to be the last one standing. And so for me, as I'm thinking about what does the future look like? What does work look like for people? How are people going to be able to live and earn livable wages and live a good life? I find myself finding that a lot of the things that we say we want as a society are fundamentally like opposed in opposition to things like blitzscaling. Because if we want a collective where everybody is taken care of, you cannot have companies that are built solely on the premise of we're going to destroy everybody else. And so this idea of the last person standing, the last company standing, I think is one that is, if many companies stop to think, if many uh, governments stop to think about it, they would realize that it is in opposition to the type of future that they want to build. And yet, we're still so obsessed with these types of numbers, like we're obsessed with unicorns, we're obsessed with billion dollar valuations. And instead of saying, hey, let's look at these startups and say, how are they adding value to society? We just point a finger at this dollar amount. We say, wow, congratulations, we have another unicorn. Instead of asking, who are these companies actually providing value to? Are they creating jobs that are paying livable wages? Are they creating ethical technologies? Are they sustainable? Are they inclusive? Are they contributing in taxes? to the societies that they are serving. Instead, we just say, wow, another company hit this inflated valuation of a billion dollars and we pat ourselves on the back and we say, what a great ecosystem, not realizing we're literally planting the seeds 
for this like poisonous tree to come up that's going to kill everything else in the forest. So that's a pretty dark and graphic image there. And I can relate back to that old book, The Day of the Triffids, where this giant carnivorous triffid is consuming all the life and trees around it. I'd never really thought of the impact of Uber's subsidised growth model on thousands of local taxi firms across the world, or that by me ordering something conveniently overnight on Amazon, the impact that compound effect of us all doing that has on the small high street retailers. So what happens when these blitzscaled, data-driven, sophisticated businesses are one of just a few left standing? Well, ultimately, consumers will be poorer for it with less choice, less competition and less vibrant local communities. It's like the boiling frog analogy that if we dropped a frog into boiling water, it would jump straight out. But when we start with cold water and there's that slow change in the environment as it warms up, it goes unnoticed and eventually we're left with very few options. But I don't think this story is told too much. I've heard various rebellious movements gathering pace around the world to fight this modern, fast-paced, digital, consumer-based society. One is the slower pace of life and relationships and community that are going to be the antidote to the online speed and shallow connections. The slow food movement celebrates the provenance of food from local healthy sources. The slow news movement gives a balanced, thoughtful perspective to key themes, allowing us to consider the nuances behind the clickbait and the sound bites. And the experience movement, which moves away from just buying more and more stuff to keep up with the latest fashion and trends and replacing those kind of gifts with personal experiences that are better for the planet and last longer in our minds. Maybe as we understand more about the traps and downsides of social media and technology, we'll start to vote with our feet, which is easier said than done when you're tight on time and budget because these whole systems have been built to be frictionless and give us the easiest and fastest option. But it's not all doom and gloom. As Rahaf said, tech can do so much for us and it's important that we take control of it. So rather than letting it control us, here's a great example for boosting our empathy and understanding of certain communities which would otherwise be inaccessible at the kind of scale we'd need to understand them properly. I think empathy is one of the best skills that we can develop. And despite all of the radicalizing impacts that technology has had, technology also has an incredible potential to bring people together to create shared understanding. And for leaders, I think developing an ability to be able to listen and truly experience what their workers, what their consumers um, are, are feeling and how they are living through this time is one of the best things that they can do. Now, as a digital anthropologist, I can give you some tips on how to do this. The first being, you're gonna create a pseudonym, you're gonna create an alias, you're gonna go in anonymous, nobody's going to know that you are the CEO. You're going to find places online where your workers, where similar people from your industry, where your consumers are gathering and sharing and talking about their experiences. But before you go in, here are the rules. 
no anger. You are just going to listen. You're going to read these comments. Even if you fundamentally disagree, even if you're like, no, that's wrong. You're just going to listen and try to develop an understanding for a different point of view. For example, on Reddit, there is a community called anti-work where people are posting some of the horrible conditions that they are experiencing at their jobs. So if you are a CEO, you might've forgotten what it's like to be an entry-level worker or to be um, a cog in a really big machine. So go and read those experiences, read the impact that managerial decisions have on people's lives, and then start to investigate what's happening in your own organization. And when you see, because you will, when you see things that fundamentally upset you or anger you, use this as an opportunity to be creative and say, I'm so glad I have access to this information that I wasn't privy to before. And then you can start to think about how can we improve these conditions. And I think developing this ability to empathize and to really put yourself in somebody else's shoes to experience the other side of the decisions, which is you made the decision and now all these people have to live with these decisions, I think helps build a more compassionate and a more human-centric culture across the board. I really like this idea. It's basically people watching at scale. And by remaining invisible, we can just consume insights into the minds, the hopes and the frustrations of any group we choose. This is great for anyone exploring product market fit or to try and understand more about a particular group or, or your company culture. But it could also be used to challenge some of our biases by spending time inside communities which challenge our stereotypes, then we can create this counter evidence and develop a more balanced perspective. Rahaf's experience on President Obama's campaign team gave her a front row seat on how technology could be used to create communities and shape opinion at scale. It was the beginning of a fascinating series of developments, which has been making the headlines for good and bad reasons ever since. In 2008, I had the tremendous and very lucky opportunity to join uh, Barack Obama's digital media team as a volunteer. And I spent several months in campaign headquarters with the digital media team, doing everything from building out Obama's um, sort of activist-centric a social platform, which was called MyBo, to looking and understanding how the SMS team was sending out their text messages, to spending time with the email team to understand how they were developing and really pioneering quite sophisticated A-B testing to figure out how emails can impact people's behavior. And it was such a wonderful way for the very first time we were seeing the appeal and the potential of these tools. And I know it sounds like ancient history, but you have to remember that at the time, nobody famous was really on Twitter. Nobody, you know, certainly not politicians, certainly not a political candidate. Nobody was really taking these tools seriously. And all of a sudden, you had this candidate that came on the scene who understood the power of these tools and started using these tools from an, an underdog position. Again, people forget that a lot of the consensus at the time was it was quite a long shot. And he was using these tools to not only build a direct relationship with voters, which is something that had never been done before. He was bypassing the mainstream media and speaking directly to people on YouTube, on Twitter, through blog posts, but also using these tools to organize a campaign apparatus that was not only able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars in small donations, donations of $5 and $25, but was also able to build out you know, actual campaign 
infrastructure. There was a point at the uh, when I was in the campaign where I would hear people talk about how the campaign officially was opening offices in a state and they were coming into that state, but but volunteers had set up all of the groundwork already. They had lists of people and events and calendars and outreach programs. And it really was an incredible way to connect people who were then able to use these tools to mobilize around causes. Now, we were quite optimistic at that time. It felt like, wow, this was an incredible opportunity to use technology to build relationships, to talk to voters about issues that they care about, to create a different type of dialogue with our representatives, with our elected officials. There were YouTube videos of Obama playing basketball or of him just hanging out. He would address the nation directly on YouTube. And this was just a really, it felt like a, a more natural, a more intimate, a less scripted environment, which I think a lot of people really related to, not to mention the financial power of being able to use micro donations to fund all of this. So that was 2008. 2012 really brought forward micro segmentation and big data, which has really laid the groundwork for a lot of the things that happened with Cambridge Analytica. And then in, in 2020, that's when we really started to see the algorithmic power of being able to hyper-target people. And so unfortunately, what we started to see was that the same technology that could be used to bring people together around issues could also be used thanks to all the information that we were collecting and all the insights that we were learning about people could also be used to not just hyper-focus a message, but to actually nudge their opinion and to change their point of view. And as we are seeing now in 2022, the implications of that are having you know catastrophic impacts in terms of undermining democratic processes, creating huge bubbles of false information, uh, circulating propaganda, circulating fake news, and all of those things that we're seeing play out, not only in things like Brexit, but with some of the, the rumors and the falsehoods that are circulating around vaccines and around the COVID virus itself. So having a president that used technology to live stream their campaigns amplified their message exponentially compared to the traditional way of standing on a street corner or spending the day in a single school or a single hospital. This online broadcast was followed by a link to financially support the campaign, which again fueled the engine. It was genius. But the next generation was to move from the broadcast to data collection on the viewers and then to use these preferences and the voters' wider behaviour to create emotionally charged adverts. For example, two adults in a specific city who both support the same sports team would receive very different messages in their Facebook feed based on whether they had kids or whether they were a certain age bracket or not then loads of personal characteristics could be targeted to nudge your voting preference one way or the other. In the competitive world of e-commerce, two big brands marketing teams may be at war to hyper-target you as their customer and consumer of their new biscuit range or their washing powder. But this was two political parties scrapping for your attention so that they could win your vote. Again, it has pretty sinister long-term consequences for the democratic model on a global scale. So as we click and swipe for hours on end, we're ultimately leaving a digital trail which strengthen and refine the algorithm. This narrowing is created innocently, but reduces the options we get presented with. And this reinforces our preference further. 
if you click on one dog video, then you're more likely to see more dog videos. And if you click on those, you get served even more. If we want to be more inclusive, tolerant and considered as a society, being fed this narrowing range of opinions isn't going to help us. That's why the extremes win. Like the Brexit campaign, both sides felt passionate about the decision and came out with extreme claims to hook people's attention. And the middle ground that were considering the balance of the argument fell quiet and it didn't stand out in the noisy claims from each extreme. I'm not making a political point either way, but I think we need to see a balanced and honest debate in issues like this. Otherwise, people will vote for something which was impossible to deliver in the first place. The end result of this is an erosion of trust where fake news wins and we lose faith in our decision makers. But how did we get here? Rahaf now explains how personalisation has moved on. When we're talking about internet trends, like say increasing polarization, I find it it's important to add some context, which is what I try to do as a digital anthropologist. And the context for this particular issue is this. It's not that we built things for people to be polarized. We just created an ecosystem where we decided that the most important thing was personalization. That means we want people to listen to music that they want, to watch shows that they want, to get suggestions that were custom tailored for them. Because research showed that if you see content that you really like, you'll spend more time on the platform. So the intent at the very beginning, I believe, was quite harmless. It was just a, an economic decision, a business model decision that when you went online, whether it was on Amazon or Netflix or Google, that the search results that you saw were custom tailored to you. The problem with that is that socially it created this expectation that personalization was actually more important than neutrality. And people receiving personalized news, personalized updates, personalized products became highly valued. And what that ended up doing was that it created an expectation where whatever people were consuming was highly personalized. So they were building what we now know to be filter bubbles, where my entire digital reality is made up of building blocks of algorithms that are only showing me the things that reflect my own preferences. So when you are engaged in a filter bubble where over I don't know, 100 interactions a day, you're only getting fed things that are custom tailored to you. By nature, that is going to create um, a familiarity. You're going to just get used to it and you're going to start to think that this is just the way things are, that the lens through which you are looking at the digital world is reality, is the, is the objective truth. And before, we didn't really have those options because you had the evening news, you had newspapers before, you know, 24-hour news cables and hyperpartisan channels. You had minimal sources of information that were coming through at the time, vetted sources and, and um, companies and institutions that had ethical standards. So all of a sudden that switched and it was like everything that you want, we're going to show you the world that you wanted to see. So. When we, what we learn from psychology in terms of how people form opinions, think about how many times an opinion becomes reinforced before it becomes a belief. And what ends up happening is all of a sudden you have people who live their entire lives getting certain news, certain perspectives, certain worldview from this hyper-customized pipeline that then cannot reconcile that there could be an alternative view. What we also see happening in terms of echo chamber effects is that you nudge somebody from opinion to belief to conviction, right? Right? So I think 
to I believe, you know, to I know, to I fundamentally believe. Once something becomes a belief, it becomes very, very, very hard to shift. And so the byproduct of this, the unintended byproduct is increasing polarization because you have people that are consuming things that are shifting their knowledge pipeline from things that they think to be true to think to things that they believe to be true. And that as a byproduct is creating all sorts of radicalization. Now, the way that we have to stop that, as we've seen from the recommendations of experts from around the world, is maybe we don't deliver algorithms that are built to create 100% of personalized content. Maybe we say, you know what? You're gonna get 50% of personalized content and 50% of neutral content or 50% of content you know, that comes from different sources. We could also do things like we could turn off the algorithms completely. So instead of having the algorithm suggest things to you, because again, research has shown that if you like something that is say, you're in the center of an opinion spectrum, the algorithm will start to nudge you a little bit more extreme, a little bit more extreme, a little bit more extreme. And these happen, this happens in like tiny micro doses every single day. So six months down the line, you might find that your entire position on an issue has shifted and you might not even know. So this is really an algorithmic issue, but fundamentally, this is a strategic issue. This is an economic issue. This is a conversation about how are we measuring profitability and how are we measuring how people spend their time online. So the challenge is to regain control and to regain a balanced perspective. If this was a physical strength being built day after day, we'd end up like one of those fiddler crabs with one massive claw and a really weedy opposite one. Our beliefs are the same. But because they're invisible and intangible, we can't see what we're building and we're only reinforcing one side of the argument. So can we curate our own feed, listen to both sides of the stories, read two contrasting sides of a newspaper argument to build our cognitive dexterity and question our online feed? This has to be taken into our own hands. Another key area which Rahaf has been working on is the shift to hybrid working and how tech is influencing our working hours, our collaboration and actually contributing to burnout. In our wider interview on our Sporting Edge platform, Rahaf explains her own personal story of experience in burnout and shows how she overcame it. And tech played a central role to that work addiction. If you remember, you can watch those sections of the interview by just clicking on a name. And if you're not, you can activate a free month in the platform by visiting sportingedge.com forward slash membership and using the code podcast100 in the checkout box. You'll be able to see all the micro courses and events that we bring everyone together onto. And we're looking to release a new white paper in the coming weeks with advice on optimizing hybrid working. So please feel free to pause the podcast here, connect with me on LinkedIn, and then you'll see those links when they get released. Here's an insight from Rahaf on how to rethink the office space for collaborative work. For me, when organizations are starting to structure their return to office policy, I think they have to remember that just having people in the office isn't enough and isn't going to cut it if there isn't a purpose, if there isn't, once again, an intentionally designed experience. So there are many companies that are really starting to rethink the structure of their offices. There are companies like Dropbox, for example, that have changed the structure of their offices to facilitate collaborative group work. So if in their case, they say, hey, come to the 
office with your team when you want to work on something. And for me, I think this is the right approach. I think it's looking at the space that you're in and looking at how people are going to use that space to collaborate and form connections and create psychological safety and build rapport. If you're just telling people, come in randomly whenever you want and there's no purpose, there's no culture, there's no design, then you're going to have people who are frustrated because they're going to come all the way into the office. Maybe their team is there, maybe their team is not there. And they're going to sit there and be like, cool, now I'm on a Zoom at my desk instead of being on a Zoom at home. And so for me, this goes back to managers and to leaders and to CEOs with a challenge that says, this is your opportunity to redesign how you think about collaboration and how you think about collaboration in a physical space. So what can you do to amplify that? How can you structure your physical offices so that when people come in, there is like a design to it, that there's a purpose to it? I've seen one interesting um, return to office policy, which is where people return to um, where people return to the office, but as teams. So individual teams will all come in a couple of times a month instead of just saying you come in here for three days and you come in here for your three days. So the idea there is let's take advantage of everybody's schedules and have a couple of, of moments where we're all together as a group because when we're all together. We're building that rapport, we're building that connection, and we're creating some of the conditions that we need to then go back to remote and hybrid and still collaborate effectively. So as I said, there's loads more insight from Rahaf and the members platform, especially on hybrid working, but let's shift our focus now to an individual perspective. We've given the context so far in this episode that the tech platforms have hundreds of brains working out how to steal and keep our attention. Well, this can become a real trap and I often find myself doom scrolling for what seems like a bit of fun, but actually it's a brain dead hour that just flashes by. Rahaf has some great advice for us about breaking our addiction to social media. I think one of the most helpful things for people to realize as they're navigating their relationship with social media is to understand that these systems were deliberately designed to be addictive. So you're not weak, it's not your fault, it is the work of experts and scientists and analysts who spend hours and and billions of dollars in research trying to make these platforms as addictive as possible. So the first step is in any problem is to realize that there is a problem and to realize that this is an addiction problem. Because once you understand that it is an addiction, is a dependency, then your relationship with finding better solutions become a little bit different. Like you understand that, you know, you're going to have to limit your time. You understand that you're going to feel withdrawal. You understand that there's going to be a negative loop in the short term, just like trying to quit smoking. But it's in, it's in renegotiating this relationship. This isn't you being weak. This isn't you being, you know, procrastinating. or or not being motivated, this is you being at the mercy of multi-billion dollar multinational conglomerates whose entire business models depend on you being addicted. So there is a race for your attention and your focus. So one is to recognize that, that, and then the second step is to start saying, okay, what can I do to protect my focus and my attention? How do I intentionally design how much time do I want to spend on social media? I am, you know, as, as, as vulnerable to this as anybody. I have timers. My husband and I, we have the, the limits on the phone that say 15 minutes or 20 minutes of TikTok a day and then that's it because we know it's designed to be addictive. 
So I think it's about creating a relationship where you are in control, you get to manage your time, but also you're designing your experiences. Like I find TikTok to be quite rewarding. I learn a lot from it, but I also know if I don't set digital boundaries in place, I will look up and realize that like two hours have passed and I'm not interested in having my attention hijacked in that way. So I'm taking back control and I'm choosing how to use these tools and how they're going to serve me. So it's not our fault that we find these platforms so sticky. They were designed that way, but it is our problem to solve. And the more we feed the beast, the more addictive it will become because it knows what you found addictive yesterday. So it will serve you even more of it tomorrow. Breaking this cycle takes either remarkable self-discipline or rather ironically, yet more tech. So apps like Moment or Antisocial allow you to set timers or block some of the sites that you want with certain parameters. So maybe that's that duality again, the good tech and the bad tech. And and we're using the good to fight the bad and this addiction on this occasion. So maybe the next wave is legislation, which limits the algorithm from tracking us and targeting us with specific ads. Maybe the platforms will be forced to have cutoff times or be policed with much more close view to to make things safer for youngsters and screen ages like mine who lose an hour or two a day on there. Either way, until we get to those outcomes, we need to manage our own inputs and screen time. I'm sure Rahaf's final point will resonate with you as she gives us a challenge to test our resolve. One of the things that I have learned by doing the work that I do is that most people don't actually understand how their brain works or what their brain needs. And we are living in a world where we are constantly stimulated. And because of our hyper productivity, we think that any time not spent doing something is a waste. So you have these little devices in our hand that are constantly giving us content that's very stimulating combined with the feeling like we're doing something. So it's like not a waste of our time. And in reality, what neuroscience has shown us is that our brain needs downtime, that activities like mind wandering or daydreaming are absolutely critical parts of the creative process. And when you ask people, where do they get their best ideas? They'll tell you things like when I'm in the garden, when I'm in the shower, when I'm walking my dog, nobody says I get my best ideas when I'm sitting in front of my computer screen or when I'm on my phone for hours and hours at a time. So the connection that we need to make is that we need to be in alignment with our brains. And one of the best things you can do for your ability to be more creative, to be more innovative, to have more energy, to not be burned out is to give your brain regular periods of what I call intentional recovery and periods of destimulation. And the easiest way to do that is to just either go outside and go for a walk or just sit on your couch, stare at your ceiling for 15 minutes. And don't try to regulate your breathing. Don't try to clear your mind. Don't try to do anything. Just literally sit there for 15 minutes and you'll find that your brain will kind of panic for a bit. Let it. Let it panic. Let it wander. Let it go meander. Go daydreaming. Go wherever you want. And what you'll find is after 15 minutes, you will feel refreshed. You might just have figured out a solution to a problem that's been stumping you. And you'll find that you have more energy to then tackle the next next task on your list. So there we have it. I'm a massive fan of technology and the positive impact and efficiencies it can bring to our lives, our cultures and our business communities. But we should definitely challenge ourselves to consider the downsides too. It's like that boiling frog problem that 
often we don't notice the changes in our environment quickly enough. So I really hope you've enjoyed considering some of those perspectives, which I was totally naive to before I started to follow Rahaf's content. If you've enjoyed her insights, do look out for her best-selling books, including Hustle and Float, which is all about breaking that work addiction cycle and using creativity as your route to achieving more. And instead of me asking you to rate and review this episode, I often bore myself with that kind of chat, why not take Rahaf's boredom challenge? Sit or stand somewhere after this episode finishes and just let your mind wander. If you're in a public place, you're probably going to cringe, thinking you look really weird just doing nothing. You'll stick at it for probably about a minute and then you'll nervously try and fumble around to grab your phone. If you do, that's this addiction that we spoke about. You're becoming a fiddler crab and I'll probably see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. 